Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Olivia Rosenman and this week on the show we are presenting Waleed Ali addressing the official launch of Media Diversity Australia. Media Diversity Australia is a not-for-profit organisation that seeks to promote balanced representation in Australian media that reflects the community it serves. We spoke to Kai Chow, the organisation's communications director, back in May, in a special episode about the problems with diversity in Australian media and the future plans of the then-soon-to-be-launched Media Diversity Australia. We also spoke to MDA's founder, Isabel Lowe, in an episode in June, where we again covered the issue of diversity in Australian newsrooms in the aftermath of the Red Simons interview with Beverly Wang. If you missed either of those episodes, they are both available on the Fourth Estate podcast feed, and I highly recommend going back and catching up. In fact, the Australian media's diversity problem is one that we have covered often here on Fourth Estate. In 2016, PwC's annual Media and Entertainment Outlook found that the average media worker in Australia was a white 27-year-old male living in Sydney's eastern suburbs. The study found that almost 83% of the national entertainment and media workforce are monolingual, speaking only English at home, and that 75% of on-air radio talent is male, white and over 35. The average boss or decision maker in Australian media organisations is a 45-year-old white male. It's precisely these statistics that Media Diversity Australia is aiming to address through research, networking and mentorship opportunities. At the organisation's launch event on Monday night, Walkley award-winning journalist, broadcaster and author Waleed Ali spoke about the disconnect between Australian audiences' willingness to accept diverse faces on TV and media organisations' reluctance to include them. Waleed also spoke about the democratic deficit when a media that is supposed to connect people with power structures excludes a large portion of the society it's supposed to serve. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much for coming along. I will make um, just a few observations that I'm hoping are not entirely obvious about the intersection of media and diversity and why it is that this stuff matters. Um, and I was trying to think 
just little instances where these sorts of things suggest themselves in your daily work when you're working in media. And the, the first thing that came to mind, this is not a devastating example, I'm not here to try to guilt you into um, adopting some victim of some grand human rights abuse or anything like that. This is just, it's a fairly trivial example, but it was indicative to me. And that is, um, take for example the name of the most famous prison to Australian ears in Indonesia, which is what? Come on, you're a room of journalists, you should be able to answer this term. Alright, so, uh, Korobakan. Karabakan? That's Karabakan. Now, this is an interesting debate that we are having about precisely how you pronounce this. Um, and one day uh, I found myself, uh, this is a long time ago now, but I found myself having to say this on air. I was thinking about, okay, um, Karabakan seems to be the thing to go with, but it just felt wrong. There was something about it wasn't right. So I rang a friend of mine who's Indonesian speaking. Um, and I didn't just go for anyone. This is a person who specialises in Indonesia. So I thought, they're not going to get this wrong. And they explained to me that in Indonesian, you emphasise, and I think it's the same in, uh, in, Malay, in Malay as well, but that you emphasise the second last syllable uh, of the word. So Karabakan uh, isn't right because Rob is the second, Karabakan, that's the second syllable. Actually, what it would be is Karabakan. So I charged into the voiceover booth. I'm very proud of myself at this point. And, uh, and I just casually uh, just punch out a karabakan like it's nobody's business. And then, uh, and then just drop the mic and walk out. And then it was around that time that I was very swiftly called back because I'd mispronounced. Uh, I can't remember how to pronounce it incorrectly now. Karabakan? I've forgotten. Um, I was pronouncing it incorrectly. And I, at this point, um, had the argument with whoever it was I was talking with. So, no, no, this is not how I've checked. I actually went and researched this, and this is how this is pronounced. And the response was not an unreasonable response in the circumstances. It was just, yeah, but all the news services are saying Karabakan, and everybody's hearing Karabakan. And if you say Karabakan, they'll have absolutely no idea what you're talking about anymore. And I thought to myself, this is an extraordinary moment, really, when you think about it. Um, I am being forced to get something wrong because that is the established house style. Our established house style is to commit to an error. That's it. That's what we're doing. And I, look, I get these things wrong all the time. There's, um, when I was at the ABC, I have colleagues who were working in Radio Australia, they had an old joke which was, What's the definition of a bad day at work? Um, a cabinet reshuffle in Thailand? I think that's the answer. And if you think through having to broadcast that, they're, they're really right. Um, that's a very difficult thing. So I get that pronunciations are going to be difficult. I'm not saying I'm George Janikian here. But I mean, let's be honest, George Janikian just made up half of them. But because he sounded ethnic, no one could tell the difference, right? He's, uh, I'm sure he's getting it right. Um, but because of... So I'm not saying I'm better than anybody else, but I just thought it was an interesting phenomenon that here we were replicating errors uh, and then committing to the replication of those errors. It's a small error. Right? Nothing. The world doesn't change because uh, we say Karabakan instead of Karabakan. Um, but it's indicative, it's symbolic really of the kinds of decisions that are made in newsrooms every day. Um, it is an error, by the way, that probably wouldn't have occurred if there were a whole lot of Indonesian speakers in the newsrooms that were constantly reporting 
on Indonesia. Um, Indonesia, of course, being a country that is entirely irrelevant to us unless it involves drugs or asylum seekers. But nonetheless, if we'd had those people who were there, this is something that just wouldn't have been automatically replicated. It wouldn't have taken on the kind of structural properties that meant that I was now committing the error by trying to seek out the correct way of pronouncing these sorts of things. And I think that sort of that example in miniature capturing the the problems with narrowcasting your newsroom says something really important that goes not just to the heart of the quality of what we produce or um, the quality of what we pronounce, but actually goes to the legitimacy of what it is we do. Um, journalists, I think, tend to have an easy ability to trot out lines to do with the importance of a free media in a functioning democracy and so on. We, we're very good at saying those sorts of things. Um, what we tend not to do, though, is pay much heed to the philosophical or theoretical bases on which those ideas ex rest, the very ideas that brought them into existence. The idea of a public sphere, for example, which we, as the media, colonise, really. Um, this is an idea that doesn't exist in pre-modern thought. This is actually quite a new idea, the idea of the public sphere. It emerges from about the 18th century. But the thing that's interesting about that idea is it was seen as the connective tissue between the state, those things that were inherently public by their own existence, so the king or the pope or whatever, between that and between people who got about their own lives privately. The public sphere was where private people suddenly became public by f through discourse, through discussion and so on, and as such could be accessed by those who were in power. Right? So it brought power closer to people. It meant that there was a way in which those that were powerful could keep in touch with the needs of private people. That's what the public sphere is. Um, if you think about that and you carry that through to its logical conclusion as the philosophers who developed this idea did, this is really the foundation of participatory democracy. We don't have participatory, participatory democracy if we don't have some kind of public sphere that stands in as a proxy for the state or for powerful entities to engage with private people. So it's a really powerful idea and media is really crucial in that. But there's an assumption that's embedded within that that's really, really easy to overlook. And that is the assumption that that public sphere is in some meaningful way reflective of the private actors that it embodies. If that public sphere is exclusive, if people can't get into the public sphere, if the private selves of certain people cannot become public entities through entrance into the public sphere, then they don't exist. They don't have any civic meaning, they don't have any civic existence. And the model of participatory democracy kind of breaks down. Now, I don't mean to get heavy with everybody, but, but that's a big deal. That's a big deal for a media that likes to talk about the indispensability of its function within a democracy, particularly a democracy that is far too big to be direct in the Athenian sense where everybody would come and everybody was the government, more or less. We're well past that. So if we're not reflective, we're actually, there's a democratic deficit that's going on here. Um, and that's to say nothing of all the commercial arguments that other people will put. I, I'm not a commercial guy. I, I, like, I, I teach at a university still doing political science and that makes me largely irrelevant when I'm not on television and so that's why I'm foisting this upon you right now. But beyond all those arguments that other people will make and they can make and they'll make very convincingly because they're now becoming undeniable, 
Um, there's a philosophical argument here that goes to the heart of the point of this whole thing, the point of what it is that we do, that if we're not capable of being reflective and if we're not made up of people that are reflective of the private selves that constitute this nation or indeed global society, then there's a shortcoming. Now, I thought the first time I really thought about diversity in media was probably about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. Um, I was on a I was speaking on a panel at a conference uh, and it was on the topic and so I had to develop some thoughts. And so what I did <laughs> was I just started thinking, I was just looking around, like monitoring the way media worked. And I noticed something really, really interesting. I noticed that if you looked at TV, it was incredibly narrowcast. So it was what I think some um, TV people in America have affectionately called a snowfield. Um, <laughs> if, if you looked at radio, you started to get a little bit more diversity, just a little bit. And if you looked at print, you started to find occasionally some people with scandalously long names, like Megalogenus and so on. <laughs> I had an interesting conversation with George Megalogenus about this, actually. And I said, um, there's more diversity in print. But then it was a bit complicated because he was Greek. And, I, and we both agreed that the Greeks are now white anyway. There was a yeah. position. And I asked him, when did the Greeks become white? And I think his answer, I might be misquoting him here, but I think his answer was when you lot showed up. <laughs> All right. Um, since I got a big laugh, I'll claim that as my own rather than his. But, um, but what I thought was interesting about it was the less visual the medium, the more comfortable with diversity we suddenly became, which is extraordinary, like as a realisation. So radio, you could look different as long as you didn't sound too different. And in print, it might be a bit complicated now because we have a lot of dinkuses, right? So there are a lot of photo, photographs accompanying bylines. But really, um, we were much more comfortable with it in print. There was one exception to this that I thought was really telling. Actually, there were two. The first, as Antoinette has referenced, was SBS, right? Which is the place, it's kind of the holding pen for people with diversity where they can safely be hidden from public view, <laughs> right? And I, and I love SBS and I've, I've done shows with SBS and I've worked there and I would happily do it again. Um, and I think it serves a really important function. What I'm worried about is it sometimes becomes an excuse. But leave that to one side. The other place that Diverse Faces showed up, really tellingly, was on Australian Network. So this was the ABC's international arm broadcasting Australia into the region, principally Asia, at which point we were quite keen to reflect the diversity of Australia, telling our story to an Asian audience. But once we were telling it to ourselves, we seemed a lot less comfortable than that. Um, and I think back about how much has changed in what, the 10, 12 years since I cobbled these thoughts together for that panel discussion. And I think it's changed a bit, but I don't think it's changed terribly much, really. Um, there will be more examples that people will put forward. If I were to say there are no non-white faces on television, someone will stand up and say, what about this person? And someone will say, what about that person? Another person will say, what about you? And they will say that to me as though that is meant to be dispositive of the argument, as though this is all over now. And my response is, you can name them. You, you, can, you can name all of them. <laughs> right? And, and that's, even if I multiply it by three, because you confuse three of us as the same person. I, <laughs> I, you can do, like, you can still name them, right? I should use that more for getting annual leave without people noticing. But yeah. <laughs> should have done that tonight. This could have been Nazim here. It would have been great. Um, 
but you can still name them, right? And you're starting to see a little bit more in print. You're starting to hear some accents on radio. Um, once upon a time, you heard accents, but it was always an English accent. Um, then it became Australian, which was a massive advance. Um, but now it's a fairly narrow kind of Australian accent, but that's starting, to, like it's just, it's just starting to see this. But the thing that I've felt about this, particularly since I started working in media sort of in earnest, is that there's no real reason for that. Like I, I might have been a little bit prepared to accept that reality if, for example, I could be convinced that, well, you can play the diversity card if you want, but it's going to cost us $10 million. But there's just no real reason for that. Because audiences don't engage the way that it seems that we in the industry engage with them. Um, that was kind of the point that I was trying to make in the Logie speech I gave last year, a point that seems to have been missed by quite a lot of people. But the point wasn't that um, Australia doesn't accept diverse faces. The point was Australia does, clearly. I mean, because I've always thought if, if I had to think of, if I had to design someone to be on Australian television, like not to win a Logie, this is what you would get, <laughs> right? This is it. And yet it happened. And the fact that it happened suggests that the audience's head is in a slightly different place to the industry's head. And really what we're talking about is a way of bringing those minds together. And this replicates itself all the time. Where does diversity turn up on our screens? Reality TV, mostly. Right? Because you can't stop brown people cooking. They're going to be really good at it. <laughs> and they're going to compete. Right? Uh, and so this happens. You start to see diversity within the casting of reality television far more than you see it in anything that is scripted. Uh, I understand reality TV, sometimes you can argue scripted, but leave that to one side. Anything, <laughs> anything that is scripted, like a scripted drama or comedy or whatever, or anything that is curated in the way that panel shows are, are curated, you have this diversity. And then what happens is audiences bond with them. And they actually, there's a long history of people bonding with non-white faces on reality television shows. Outside of that, what we tend to do is package or um, quarantine our diversity into the role of guests. So we have diverse voices because we have this person who comes on regularly to talk about whatever. And this is not the kind of solution I'm talking about. That's someone being packaged within a category to come and perform that category for our amusement in periodic intervals and then going away so that the real people can get on with the conversation. What I'm talking about is the Karabakan example. I'm talking about the infusion of newsrooms, of um, talent that is on air, the infusion of the processes that produce this culture, that create this public square that is the basis of participatory democracy. I'm talking about the infusion of all that with something that is actually pretty organic. And I just don't think there's anything particularly that stands in the way of that. And I gather, um, although I'm just in here in an advisory capacity and not in a directive capacity, I gather that's the point of this. Really, it's not about trying to create some kind of revolution. It's about trying to give some kind of room to the organic growth that is more or less inevitable if the public square, the public sphere, is to maintain the integrity that it has. All right, with that, I'll shut up. Thank you very much for coming.
That's it for us this week on Fourth Estate. Stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you like the show, we would love it if you left us a review on whichever podcast player you are using or simply tell a friend that you think would like it too. I'm your host, Olivia Rosenman, and I'll catch you next week on Fourth Estate. <laughs>